One of my mates who's a minister uh, told me this story. It was about when he first started uh, at a church, probably in the early 90s. Uh, and for many years, that church had had liberal ministers. By liberal, I mean they had ministers in this church who uh, didn't believe the Bible was God's word. They didn't have confidence in the Bible. They uh, would have denied essential Christian truths, such as Jesus rising from the dead bodily, a real resurrection, uh, or denying that on the cross, Jesus took the punishment for the sin. The story this minister told me was uh, when he started preaching at this church, most Sunday afternoons he'd get a phone call. He'd get a phone call from one of the elders and he'd get on the phone and he'd say, do you really mean that all I've got to do is trust in Jesus? That's all I've got to do to be saved? And the minister would answer, yes. And the elder would say something like, astounding, and then just hang up. Uh, Despite being an elder, a leader in God's church, he didn't know the most central truth, that salvation and forgiveness is in Christ alone. I'm guessing he'd previously heard Jesus had come to teach the golden rule, that as long as you did to others as they did to you, and if you did that well enough, then God would accept you. But the good news of Jesus that my mate went to this church and started preaching, the good news of Jesus Well, that's the message we've been hearing in Acts that Paul has been preaching, that forgiveness and forgiveness come through trusting in Jesus alone. But in that church, it was an alien concept. And it's nothing new. It's nothing new that this central truth of the Bible gets obscured. Today we're going to hear how salvation through Christ alone was a controversial idea right at the start. Now this term we've been digging into the book of Acts uh, and particularly uh, this section of the book of Acts from chapter 9 to chapter 15. We started in chapter 9 after the murder of Stephen at the hands of an angry mob. We've seen the good news of Jesus spread, spread from Jerusalem. It's gone to Judea and Samaria. It's begun to spread to the whole world, to the ends of the earth. Uh, First with the Ethiopian eunuch and then spreading north into deeply pagan areas. Like last week where the people of Lystra mistook the power of the risen Lord Jesus. They mistook it for the work of their pagan gods. Uh, This term, we've seen the kingdom of God pushing into new areas. And it hasn't been easy. We've seen persecution from unbelieving Jews. We've seen the reluctance of Jewish believers. They haven't wanted to welcome Samaritans or Gentiles. And we saw this particularly with God sending a vision to Peter. Three times a vision so uh, was sent to Peter so he would even talk with a Gentile, a bloke called Cornelius. And then later in chapter 11, we hear how the Christians in Jerusalem, the church in Jerusalem is horrified that Peter would dare enter the house of a Gentile, even a God-fearing one, and not just enter his house but eat at his table. As the kingdom of God has gone into the world, it's raised big questions for Jewish believers. Is faith in Jesus enough? Do Gentiles, do non-Jews, do do you have to become Jewish 
to be a proper believer? And this question comes to a head today. So last week, Paul and Barnabas were on the road. Uh, They travelled through southern Galatia and they've now returned to Syrian Antioch. And they've stayed put in that city for a long time. While they're based in Antioch, remember there were two Antiochs, not Antioch in Pisidia, that's the one up north, Antioch in Syria, that's the one on the right-hand side of our screen. When they're in Antioch, trouble comes. It comes from the church in Jerusalem, the church that had originally sent Barnabas to help establish the church in Antioch. And the trouble is, Jewish believers, they're pretty worked up, they're getting quite anxious, they're agitated about this Gentile church. They're offended, maybe because they've heard, you know what happens in Antioch? In Antioch, Jewish and non-Jewish Christians eat together. And that's getting them all a bit anxious. Uh, They love one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. These believers from Jerusalem are troubled that non-Jewish believers would have been welcomed into the church on the basis of trusting in Jesus and nothing else. Now, I reckon these these blokes, I'm assuming they're blokes, maybe there's some women with them too, I reckon they come with good motives. They're worried about the purity of the church. They're worried that these Gentiles, these non-Jews, have been misled, that they've been given a false hope for salvation. I think they do this with good motives. But they've got bad theology, and so in their minds they come to Antioch to sort and think, to sort things out. So let's hear what happens from verse 1. So this is Acts chapter 15 and verse 1. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers Unless you are circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and dispute with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way. And as they travelled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted and this news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. So what's their concern? What's their message? Jesus isn't enough. Jesus isn't enough for salvation. You've got to be circumcised, which was something God had told Abram right back in the Old Testament. It was a marker of being part of God's chosen people. So they said, unless you're circumcised, unless you follow the law of Moses, uh, the Ten Commandments and all the other commandments, it's necessary to do all of these things It doesn't matter if you trust in Jesus. If you don't do all of this other stuff, you're going to go to hell. That was their message. You can come across similar things today. Unless you go to confession, you'll go to hell. If you, unless you vote for a a certain political party, you're not a real Christian. Now these teachers come from Jerusalem, but Paul and Barnabas won't have a bar of it. 
There's actually a little bit more that went on in Antioch, but you're going to have to wait until early next term when we get to Galatians 2 to find out some of the other details. But so far what we've seen is that Paul and Barnabas won't have a bar of this circumcision teaching. And the reason is they know that by adding something to the gospel, by saying, yes, you've got to believe in Jesus plus get circumcised, they know adding something to Jesus is really a subtraction. That's the gospel mathematics. Adding anything to Jesus is really subtraction. Now, sometimes adding something makes the thing better. If you add brown sugar to porridge, it makes it better. Adding dirt is really a subtraction. You put dirt in your porridge, it will make it worthless. When it comes to the gospel, when it comes to what Jesus has done on the cross, adding anything to trusting in Jesus is subtraction. Because you're saying, look, Jesus, yeah, you're pretty good, but we need just this little bit extra. There's just something you've missed out, Jesus. You're no longer, when you add anything to Jesus, you're no longer trusting in him alone. What you're really trusting in is that little bit you've added. By requiring circumcision and everything in the law of Moses, what really you're saying is by telling Gentiles, hey, you've got to become Jewish, by adding this requirement, you subtract from Jesus. Because what you're saying is, yeah, Jesus gets you this far, but really to get over the line, you've got to trust in your own ability to obey the law instead of trusting solely in Jesus and his perfect obedience. And this is wrong. And so the church in Antioch sends a delegation. It's Paul, Barnabas, and maybe some elders. They send a delegation to Jerusalem to sort things out. Now, why do they do this? How's Jerusalem going to help a problem that's happening in Antioch? Well, possibly the church in Antioch, they're not sure who to believe. Uh, These circumcision teachers are persuasive. But then again, so are Paul and Barnabas. and So maybe they're looking for a wider group of church leaders to help them out. They want help from the elders and apostles in Jerusalem. Maybe the church in Antioch is confident. They know the gospel they've heard from Paul is the truth. They know Jesus is all they need for salvation, but they've got no authority, no control over these circumcision teachers. So they've got to go to the elders in Jerusalem Who could put a stop to it? And maybe the Antioch church is concerned this circumcision teaching has caught on in Jerusalem. They're worried the gospel is being confused, even denied in Jerusalem. And so they send the delegation to help their brothers and sisters there to walk in the truth. It could be any one of these reasons, probably a bit of all of them. The conflict that happened in, happened in Antioch leads to a conference. So the delegation from Antioch arrive in Jerusalem and there's a debate. They meet with the elders and apostles in Jerusalem. Now it's worth noting uh, the church here, the churches in Antioch and in Jerusalem and actually all through southern Galatia, we saw that last week, the churches are now becoming, uh, starting this process of being led and ruled by elders. Now, Acts 15 is often brought up in discussions on how churches should work, especially about how churches should work together in denominations. 
we're not going to really discuss that today. Today, we want to focus on the content of this debate. We spent a bit of time thinking about the, the polity, the way churches run in our Bible studies. Today, we want to focus on the content of the debate and how they settle the issue. So there's initially a lot of discussion and preamble, as debates like these often get into. But after the crowd has kind of worn themselves out, the leaders of the churches weigh in. First up, the Apostle Peter. Uh, Peter reminds everyone of what God has done through him. He reminds them how the gospel came to Cornelius. Cornelius was a Roman centurion, a Gentile who received Christ. And it was obvious to Peter, obvious that God accepted Cornelius without circumcision, without submitting to the law. They know Cornelius was saved because he trusted in Jesus and that was the point where he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 6, uh, the apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. What's the guts? What's the core of Peter's argument, he makes two big points. First one, holy and unholy can't go together. Like oil and water, they don't mix. And so, this is his argument, so if God gave Gentiles the Holy Spirit, this means they are holy. But what did they do to become holy? Absolutely nothing. No circumcision, No law of Moses. They received Christ. They put their faith in him. And because of that, they were holy, they were purified, and the Holy Spirit could dwell within them. If they weren't holy, there'd be no Holy Spirit. So that's his first point. Purity, holiness comes through faith in Jesus, not the law. The second point of his argument is the law is a yoke, a heavy weight Jews couldn't carry. Why did Jews need Jesus? Why had the Jews in Jerusalem received Christ? Well, because they knew the law couldn't save. Circumcision didn't save. The reason they had trusted in Jesus is because the only way Jews are saved is by God's grace alone, in the Lord Jesus alone. That's the only way Jews are saved, and it's the same for Gentiles. So two big points of the argument. Holy and unholy don't mix. The Holy Spirit proves they're holy. And the law didn't make Jewish people holy. They were saved by grace, just as Gentiles are. And that was a bit of a mic drop moment. Before that, the crowd, you know, the assembly's having a bit of a hoo-ha. Peter says that. The crowd goes silent. Then Barnabas and Paul tell what they've experienced. Luke doesn't explain, doesn't record anything of what Paul and Barnabas said, because... He already has. That's chapters 13 and 14 of Acts. 
After Barnabas and Paul speak, James stands up. Uh, This is the James first heard about in chapter 12. He's become a significant leader in the Jerusalem church. From Galatians, we know he's one of Jesus' brothers, a son of Mary and Joseph. Uh, Peter, Barnabas and Paul have spoken about what they've seen God do. James closes the debate by going to the Bible, showing what's happened. It's just what God has promised. Jews, you shouldn't be surprised. This is what the Old Testament, this is what our scriptures have said for thousands, well, for hundreds of years. Verse 12. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. Uh, Simon, that's another name for Peter. We're just going to pause here for a tick. Saying from the Gentiles, God has a people for his name, a people for his name, that is huge. That's words the Old Testament only ever uses of Israel. But James is expanding the borders. In Jesus, Gentiles are now joined. They're grafted into the people of God. It's very subtle, but it's a very big point. But let's get on to his main point as he quotes from the prophet Amos. Verse 15, the words of the prophets are in agreement with this as it is written. After this, I'll return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord who does these things, things known from long ago. What had God promised through Amos? Two promises. First one, God promised to restore David's fallen tent. This is a promise to restore David's kingdom, to put one of David's descendants on an eternal throne. And God has kept his promise, hasn't he? He kept it through the death, resurrection and ascension of Jesus. In Jesus, this has happened. The second part of the promise is, after there's a king on David's throne, then Gentiles will carry, will bear the name of God, be marked out as the people of Yahweh. That's the promise. God's king equals Gentiles saved. Look at the quote. What does Amos say nothing about? Circumcision. The law. God's promise isn't the Gentiles who are circumcised will bear his name. God's promise isn't the Gentiles who take on the law of Moses will bear his name. It's those who seek him. And if that's what God has promised, if that's what God has done, well, who can add anything to the gospel of Jesus? Who can require Gentiles to be circumcised? And so James makes a suggestion. He proposes this assembly communicates clearly that those insisting on circumcision are wrong, that to add circumcision to the gospel is really a subtraction. So he says, let's write to the churches uh, where these false teachers have gone and make it clear salvation is through Christ, faith in Christ alone. And the elders and apostles who have gathered together agree. Verse 19. 
It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Then the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas called Barsabas and Silas, men who were leaders among the believers. With them they sent the following letter. The apostles and elders, your brothers. To the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria and Cilicia. Greetings. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends, Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. Now, the content of this letter raises a few questions. First up, look, there's some big questions, but first up, it's very clear what the position on circumcision and law-keeping is. The silence in this letter is deafening. No mention of circumcision, no mention of keeping the commandments and statutes of the law of Moses. Very clear, salvation is in Christ alone. But then the question is, what's the go with these four requirements? Why are they told to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, sexual immorality, meat of strangled animals and blood? The big question is, we've got to assume these four things go together somehow. So how do they fit together? Somehow they must, but it seems that one of these things does not belong here. One of these things isn't the same. Three of them are about food. One's about sex. What gives? Oh, there's a few different theories people have proposed, a few different ideas about what's going on here. I'm going to quickly explain the two of them that I think are most likely. It could be these four things are about not offending Jews, whether those Jews trust in Jesus or not. The law of Moses had lots of laws about clean and unclean food. You couldn't consume blood. Uh, There were rules about how to kill animals for food. It could be these four things were given so Jews and Gentiles could eat together. Uh, The concern was both deep unity within the church. Gentiles should put aside their culinary preferences. They shouldn't do things that offend Jews. And the concern is also for mission. Gentile believers shouldn't do anything that could make it hard for Jews to hear the gospel. That could be what's going on. Uh, The difficulty with this is where does sexual immorality fit together with those food things? Everywhere else in the New Testament, 
sexual sin isn't just about not offending people. It's a no-go. We don't live sexually pure lives to avoid offending Jews. Christians do it to honour God and to love one another. So I'm not totally convinced by this theory, but it might be right. What I think is more likely is these four things are about idol worship. Putting these four things together is telling these new Christians, keep well away from idols, have nothing to do with anything polluted by idol worship, whether that's food or the sexual behaviour that happened at pagan temples. The point of these four things is, don't try mixing Jesus and worshipping idols. Now you might wonder, why they got to say this? Why are they got to write this in a letter? Surely if you've turned to trust in Jesus, you'd stop worshipping idols. Especially if you love Jesus, you especially would have nothing to do with the sexual stuff in the temple. And you might think this. But then again, this sort of stuff comes up over and over again in the New Testament. Keep away from idols. Don't commit sexual sin. In fact, Christians today, we need to be reminded again and again and encouraged to flee similar sins. We we see sexual sin and worship of false gods, especially money, and Paul says that greed is idolatry. We see this kind of stuff going on in churches today. So it's no surprise that they, these new Christians, and we, we need to be urged and encouraged to keep away from idols. The point of this letter and these four things to steer clear of is to make sure the Gentiles keep their eyes fixed and their faith fixed on Jesus Christ alone. Not Jesus plus circumcision, not Jesus plus worshipping idols. When you add anything to Jesus, it's subtraction. Don't add the law, don't add idols. And so they send this letter... And the churches who receive it are really glad because it reinforces the gospel they know. It encourages the faith they already have in Christ alone. Verse 30. So the men were sent off and went down to Antioch where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the believers. After spending some time there, They were sent off by the believers with the blessing of peace to return to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, where they and many others taught and preached the word of the Lord. The message of salvation in Christ alone, that we don't need to add anything to have eternal life with God, it is good news. And when you know Jesus, having this confirmed encourages and brings joy. Uh, For my minister friend and the elder used to call him up almost every Sunday, uh, that story has a happy ending. By the time I met that elder, he was someone who knew that truth himself. Uh, He's gone to glory now and I can say with confidence that despite what he'd previously heard in his church, that he'd now heard that salvation was in Christ alone, trusting in Jesus, clinging to him, and in God's kindness, his ears is opened, his heart was opened, he received Christ for salvation, and he was saved. Not by keeping laws, not by being circumcised, not by following the golden rule, 
just by trusting in Jesus. Have you? I don't think circumcision or the Jewish law is really the issue for us. But some of us will feel unsure about our eternity. Wondering whether, oh, have I done enough to be saved? Uh, we've added something to Christ. Maybe we're, we're wondering, oh, yes, I trust in Jesus, but have I prayed enough? Have I done more good things than bad? But as Peter says, God purifies hearts by faith in Christ alone. Or maybe there's an idol you're clinging to. Your backup hope isn't just in Jesus. You've got this backup hope, which is found in money or family, that if only I've got that, then I'll be truly satisfied and safe. And that's holding you back from trusting and rejoicing in Jesus alone. Jesus is able to save and satisfy. Yes, that is all that we need. All that we need to receive him. And that's all we need for eternal life. And it is astounding news. But it's true. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you so much for Jesus. That Christ is all we need for salvation. That his death fully pays for all our sin. And by faith, the Spirit unites us to Christ, so we have every spiritual blessing in him. Please strengthen us to add nothing to this gospel, to not add religion or requirements, to not try and worship idols as well as Jesus, like worshipping idols like money or our own self, and then try and fit Jesus in with them. May we rely on Christ and his death and resurrection alone for salvation. Amen.